Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in our Week in IndyCar series. Going to do something a little bit different this week. Following Pocono, boy, nothing happened there to talk about. After Pocono and some other recent news, more than 170 questions and comments come in via social media. And with that volume and knowing how long it would take to get through that many, many of those from my guests, but even more from me, decided to do something I believe I've only done once before, and that is break up the weekly show into two podcasts. So here we have our interviews. Our man Santino Ferrucci just completed his second run to fourth place this year. He's been, I think, a lot more than folks expected. I know on the character side and personality side, circumspect, at least, at minimum. And it appears some folks are beginning to understand it is possible to change and to become a better human being. So that's where we start with Santino. Number of questions about this 21-year-old, who he is as a person today, and speaking about some of the things that he was accused of last year, not all of them accurate. I know this is going to sound crazy. Not everything you read on the internet is 100% true. Nonetheless, that's where we start with Santino, get into a wide array of things between charity efforts that he's been doing, which team he wants to drive for, thoughts about Pocono and just his aptitude on ovals in general. Good stuff. Lots of fun with the kid. Then we move on to another kid, Corey Enders, competing in the Indy Pro 2000 series, a Texas native competing for the D-Force racing team, one that he is an integral part of. Good to get to know Corey a little bit more here. So those are the two items we have for you on this episode, straight-up interviews with Santino and Corey. And then we're going to move into the second episode of the week, that being your Q&A. I just completed that. It took more than three hours. It was fun. And as I mentioned in the opening there, I just went. I just went. So rather than try and do anything on whatever time scale and shorten this up. I just y'all sent in a ton and I wanted to try and get to everything. And that opens up with about an hour on Pocono, looking at all kinds of thoughts, ramifications, things that weren't mentioned, some things that were uh, a little questionable in terms of statements or claims made. So that's part two. Once you're done here, hopefully you will go and enjoy that. And who knows? If the volume of questions continues to remain as high as they've been of late, maybe this will just become the norm. Get the interviews in one show, and then you can move on to the other and get the Q&A that you all sent in for me. All right, well, let's get going here on the Weekend IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Santino Ferrucci, great to have you back on the week in IndyCar. It's been, I think, a little over three months since we had you on. You're doing all kinds of things behind the steering wheel of an IndyCar to warrant being on the show fairly regularly. First of all, how are you doing after Pocono? And can you also share with folks the duties that you were just completing before calling in? Because they're really romantic and sexy than what people would expect <laughs> of a young IndyCar driver. Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling pretty good after that race. I'm going into it. I had a lot of, I had over 120 guests with me that weekend and, you know, having that many people watching you live is, is a lot of pressure and it's, 
you know, calls for a big task and, um, not to do as well as place fourth was amazing and running the top four the whole race was, uh, another thing for sure. And I was having a lot of fun and, uh, no, I kind of, I kind of wish the race didn't end short like it did, but it happens. And then, um, yeah, no, I get two and a half days back home before I head out to St. Louis and, uh, figured it'd be good to do a little bit of yard work and clean up the house outside for, uh, a day and, uh, you know, kind of prepare everything for when I leave again. As I told you before we started recording, you're truly blowing the perception that a young IndyCar driver's life is straight up Jersey shore, gym, tan laundry. So you out mowing the lawn. I kind of like that. We just got to work on the imaging a little bit. All right, let's yeah. get, let's get rolling here. we got a lot of great questions. Got about 45 minutes or so to record in the first few definitely follow along a similar theme. Every time we've had you on, they've evolved a little bit though. And it's about character and recovering from a rough patch in 2018. I figure let's go here first because it's always interesting to hear from you on these topics. We're going to go with Ryan Terpstra first. He says, Santino, every week you continue to exceed expectations for a rookie. IndyCar fans are extremely knowledgeable, and every week you continue to exceed what you're doing on track. But I see a number of fans who say, yeah, but remember what he did in Formula 2. And Ryan says, I certainly wouldn't want to be judged by all my decisions as a teen or even in my 20s. He says, with a year and most of your first IndyCar season now behind you, can you reflect on what happened at Silverstone? And what do you have to say about it today that maybe you didn't see or couldn't say at that time? No, I think uh, it goes back to just being a lot more mature and uh, behind the wheel and thinking about your decisions that you're making. And, um, what's funny about that is, you know, I think it reflects a lot more in the ovals because of the fact of how dangerous they are. And, you know, I'm trying to make myself just more conscious and more aware of my actions. And I think that, you know, that race obviously taught me a lot, um, going forward and, you know, I like to think now that I'm completely different behind the wheel, uh, as far as my attitude, but I have the same trying to figure out how to work on the aggression to stay still aggressive on track, if that makes sense. And not being, you know, and being intelligent about it. Like I had an opportunity to pass Simon, uh, when he was coming out of the pits but I didn't just, just because I, you know, to me, it would have been a mistake to try and pass him into turn two. And, you know, you kind of see flashbacks of what happened last year. And then you see flashbacks of kind of what happened to Robbie in that turn. So, you know, you, you just a little bit more conscious and a little bit more aware of uh, what you're doing as a driver. Also say the other angle here, which Andrew Baca has asked is an interesting one as well and it's all the off the racetrack part he says santino in the time since your transition out of formula two what's been your biggest personal lessons that you've learned and that you've applied and also how might you do things differently if you went back to silverstone last year both the original incident 
and how you handle the consequences afterwards. So race car, racetrack aside, you as a 20, 21 year old, how do you look back now at the off track, the wave of reaction that came into you? How might you handle that differently? And how have you processed the consequences that have come? Yeah, I think handling it the way I did, you know, I I was really confused and scared. Uh, I know I had made a mistake. um, And looking back at that, you know, I should have been a lot more upfront about it right from uh, the race onwards. And, you know, that that's something that I'd have to live with and something that, you know, I had to adjust to. Um, but what's funny about that is it teaches you a lot about yourself and being in the paddock. And also what I learned being in IndyCar is, you know, I get to be more of myself, you know, in Europe, I didn't realize, uh, how quiet and closed off I was, um, especially from like a, a a family and friends point of view. Like, you know, you, you look back at that and go, wow, I was, you know, not a really open person and. I was, you know, always to myself and, you know, now I'm always outside and hanging out with the fans and talking a lot about their cases and what's we're just going trying to get you to shut mind. up now. I mean, we, we've yeah. gone so far the opposite direction. Yeah. Funny enough. That's, it's weird how that works, you know, but I think it has a lot to do with, you know, how comfortable I am. Like it's, it's really stressful over there. And it's, it's really hard to, to, uh, uh, for people that haven't been over there and raced in that kind of pressure situation, it's, it's really hard to describe, uh, what it's like. And, you know, you come back home and I look forward to going every race. And also, you know, I'm not looking that far into the future anymore. I'm, I'm just looking at the next race, the next lap, nothing, nothing crazy. I'm just now I'm more living in the moment than, you know, trying to live in the future. And I think that's had a massive impact on my life and my career and, my attitude uh at the racetrack and off uh, on and off the track let's go to one other topic on this theme and it's real so since excuse me since the incident last year your indian teammate arjun maney you have been branded as a racist and there are some someone who i've never met never seen at a racetrack wrote a hit piece about you on jalopnik which seemed to really stoke folks who take everything they know from the internet and run with it. You've been branded as a racist. I know that when we spoke last year around this time at Portland, did a bit of a a deeper dive on this topic. It was one that I don't know if you'd fully reconciled yet. It's a powerful accusation, Santino. It's not one that goes away easily with a year or so to process and seeing what comes in on social media, right? Not everything's glowing and, Hey, we love you. You're doing wonderful in IndyCar. How do you process this? I'm not asking you to respond, to speak to whomever, but just curious once you're branded with something like that, especially at a young age, that's not something that you can just choose to ignore. I would imagine. No, I, I find it, uh, incredible uh, incredibly annoying to be honest with you and you know it, it it really upsets me that people 
are so quick to judge because I feel like they judged it off of something that was being trying, you know, all right, we'll be straight at it. We were trying to run the, the, the MAGA as request from my sponsor, who's very conservative. And I feel like people were quick to judge. You know, I had to get a letter from the FIA saying I couldn't run it as per request. And to me, it didn't, doesn't matter. I drive the race car. I don't control what goes on it. You know, the only thing that I cared that was on it was the American flag next to my name. Because to me, that's that's my home country. That's my heritage. That's where my family's from. That's where I grew up. And I think the fact that because I had an Indian teammate who I was best friends with and I am still friends with, like we grew up together as kids in karting. We were teammates in New Zealand, even though, funny enough, we drove for different teams. We were still teammates to each other. We trained every day together, you know, and we had so much fun. I mean, he was actually one of the only people that came to uh, my uh, one of my birthdays I threw in Europe when I turned 17. He was the only driver to to I invited to come with me to have a dinner with in, in Italy. Have so, you guys spoken since Silverstone? Um, I I'm yet to reach out to him because he's not really big on social media and I don't have his number, but I've, I know we have some really close mutual friends, um, that I saw not too long ago and I asked how he was doing and, you know, they said he's doing well and everything. So, uh, it's one of those things where I think, you know, I, I just want to be over with the season before I really start to, to reach out and stuff like that. But no, it's just, it's annoying because something like a title like that, you know, just because your teammate, you know, you don't think about that when you're driving a race car, your job's to drive the race car. It doesn't matter who who they are as your teammate. They're still your teammate. And to me, he was more than just my teammate. He was a friend. And I don't understand why people can't see that. You know, obviously you have like Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. Do you think they got along sometimes? Of course. Do you think they hated each other at times? Of course. They were teammates competing for a world championship. You know, but Nico never got that branding. I mean, I, I, for me, I think it's because of the fact that I was, you know, I am American and what was trying to have been put on the car and a couple other things that I, you know, I just, I don't agree with and I don't agree with people's quick judgment to that. And so, you know, it's, it's just really annoying to me. Well, as someone who's been branded an idiot for most of his life, I've yet to figure out how to remove that tag, and I'm probably not helping my cause <laughs> as well. Let's move on. Let's go to Mike Shaw. Staying a little bit of a similar theme, but interesting evolution, he says. Uh, a year ago, many of us were understandably apprehensive about you joining the series based on what was in the news at the time. It says, yet coming to IndyCar, you've shown an exponential increase in maturity, highlighted by your willingness to say lift, and fall behind Simon Pagano last weekend. He says, what do you attribute this increase in memory, uh, I'm sorry, in maturity to? He says, could it be the environment of IndyCar, learning from your own mistakes in the past, friends, family, all the above? He says, congrats on the great finish, the fourth place, and I look forward to seeing you at Portland in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, I think uh, a lot a lot of it has to do with maturity and that, but also I feel like IndyCar, you know, is a lot more of a dangerous 
uh, category than, than most formulas because of the ovals. And, you know, I feel like I talked to James about this and, you know, a couple other drivers, you know, I feel like it's important that we take care of each other, you know, cause most of these guys do have families and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I'm still very young and uh, it's kind of our job to sit here and, you know, make sure that we all come back at the end of the day. I mean, it's, it's going to always be a dangerous sport, no matter what you do for safety or improvements, you know, at the end of the day, you still go out there and put your life on the line. And there's no reason to, you know, in my opinion, coming up on passion, there's no reason to risk fourth or third when there's another 70 laps to go and two pit stops. So it just kind of, you know, wasn't going through my mind. Last lap, the Indy 500. Okay. This is a different story, but you're looking at lap 120 of 200 at Pocono Raceway for uh, a, a third place, which, you know, there's still so many variables up in the race that you never know where you can end up. Let's go to Matthew Ponto, who says, Santino, what is the biggest surprise you've experienced racing on ovals that you were not expecting going into this season? And why do you think you've adjusted as well as you have? Man, racing on them is unique. You know, you kind of feel like you're back in a go-kart again at, you know, one of these really long racetracks. And, you know, I, I, I really enjoy the strategy of the ovals, you know, where, you, you know, you slot in behind cars and you, you're able to pass and run two wide or three wide sometimes. And, you know, I, I just think the whole dynamic of the ovals, I've just really enjoyed as a racer, you know. And also, I think it comes down to the fact that I, I really haven't made that many decisions on my own. Like you sit back and you look at all these races and, you know, I, I've always had someone in my ear talking me through it, getting me through there, you know, Michael Cannon, Pancho Carter, you know, it, it's one of those things to where even Sebastian, like you have people that are there that have been doing this their whole lives that have this great wealth of knowledge and experience. And on oval, the best approach for me was to shut up and listen and that's what I did. And I've just, you know, I've been listening and listening and just doing what I've been told. And, you know, obviously by doing that, it's, it showed that I can do have really good results on these ovals and uh, I can race really strong and really hard and listening and working with the team has been, uh, been really good. It's been really good for me. Let's see, where shall we go? We have many, many questions for you. And, you know, let's jump around a little bit here. Let's jump around. Both Don Gregory and Steve Straub, thanks, Steve, uh, sent in similar questions here. Don says, Santino, can you tell us about the Supercar super Rally event you did for charity recently? <laughs> I'd love to see it at every stop in the NECAR calendar. And then Steve asks if you have any hobbies outside of racing and cars uh, and also says, great job with the charity car rally this weekend impressive to see a young man so dedicated to helping those less fortunate yeah the the auto car rally was you know something that came up in a meeting with indycar you know we're trying to figure out ways to promote the tracks to promote indycar to do something different in the media and my idea was to bring an auto rally behind uh, to my home race, which was the Poconos, and to support uh, a cause called uh, Dream Ride. And 
what it dream ride is it's an actually an event this weekend that goes on um i will be there on sunday because we race saturday night in st louis and we fly in special olympics athletes from all over the world i mean all over it doesn't matter how far they 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 get flown by uh uh a company bazuto foods and the hometown foundation and we bring in all these people we raise believe it's upwards of $2 million. We bring hundreds and hundreds of cars together, tons of bikes, and we go out on what's called a cruise. And we take these special Olympic athletes in our cars and we go out on a complete road closed by all of the police in Connecticut. And we go out and do a little cruise uh, around Farmington, Connecticut at, at the Farmington Polo Grounds and get the chance to sit down and chat and share experiences with these with these athletes and uh you know we we make friends and and family members basically because you know i still stay in touch with quite a few of the people that i quite a few of the athletes that i met met last year at at this event and you know it's kind of awesome it gives them um you know uh, a cool cool little uh trip to come to connecticut and gives them an experience to sit in a cool sports car and the idea of the rally was to get a bunch of us uh, us friends together and to raise awareness for this event this coming weekend because it is local to everybody in the Northeast and to get more people to come out and witness it and more people to bring cars out to give athletes rides. And um, I'd say it worked and it was pretty successful. So and uh, we're looking at this year being uh, much, much larger than the last as well already. I love the fact that not only are you doing what you can to help raise money for a pretty cool charity, but also the fact that you're trying to connect with IndyCar to help uh, even more unions between the things that drivers feel passionate about on the benevolence front and tying that into the series where in terms of recognition, the most amplification would happen. So that is great to hear. Go to Jerry Siddeth, who says, Santino, could you describe your thought process at Pocono in responding to the first lap crash and how you got through it safely? And did you, from not just seeing what happened last year with Robert Wickens, but just some of the crashes we've seen in recent years at Pocono, did that come with you into the start, Santino? Kind of a, ooh, I know things can get hairy here to start. Do I factor that into how i approach the opening laps curious there yeah no when the mindset this weekend was tough for me when you have that many people it's really hard to get time to clear your mind and you know i needed a whole two hours to sit kind of almost by myself to just think think about the race and think about getting through it and you know when you go green like that uh and you, you you go through turn one, everything looks really good and everything seems like it's going to be all right. And then you see a ball of smoke going down the back stretch, going into two, you know, the, the first thing that came on my mind was to the lane where I was up high was clear. So I didn't want to break because when we come into the corner, everyone started to spin in, they're going to come up across the track. And, you know, so I, I started to back out of the gas and I just got right back into it. To, to try and get around and not get collected. And, um, you know, seeing that the past accidents in a year, you know, you don't really think about that when you're 
in the race car, you, you just try and think about, you know, it's a 500 mile race. It's long. There's going to be a lot of opportunities and there's no point in throwing it away in lap one by trying to be a hero. It's about survival. And, um, I feel like that's kind of the mindset that I've always had going into the ovals was just getting through and not mattering if I lose positions. Obviously in the last two races, uh, we've looked, especially Iowa was pretty wild, but I mean, those, those are more to do with luck and experience of my spotter, uh, put pushing me to test the, test the limits. And, um, but no, you, you go through something like that. I don't necessarily think Pocono is a more dangerous track than any other. I mean, yeah, of course we've had some really bad accidents there, but you know, the speeds that we race at in general on the ovals is dangerous, but we all know that as drivers. So, and I think just because we're coming down to the last four events, people are trying to go bigger and make bigger moves to get bigger rewards to, you know, to finish off the year strong. And sometimes, you know, in my opinion, a super speedway oval is not the place to do that. It's a very dangerous place and, you know, we need to keep, keep taking care of each other. Let's go to Tim Reagan. And this is tied a little bit to the supercar rally that we just spoke on. He said, what do you think the series and teams should do to attract more young fans, say from 18 to 25? Hmm. I don't know. There was this idea that another series in Europe did that I think was pretty awesome was to open to take a couple of tracks. Let's take Pocono, for example. It's not really close to anything other than Wilkesburg, which is still not really close to anything. And you take, say, their grandstand level 100, which is kind of like the bottom grandstand. And you just say, anyone that comes, it's completely free. So to get people to come and witness an event in person, you know, all those people on the car rally, they'd never been to an IndyCar race before. And they were all taken away at how cool it was and how awesome the racing is and how amazing the cars are and the pits and the garage and everything that goes on. You know, they've, they've never seen that before. And, you know, they want to come back and they all want to do it again. And I feel like to get, you know, sometimes what keeps people from coming and watching it on TV is, you know, sometimes it's ticket prices. You know, but I mean, if you open it up to get people to just come witness it and come see what it's actually like, whether it be, you know, Grandstand 100, Grandstand 200 or general admission to somewhere where they can at least have some access to watch the race. I feel like that that's the best way to get new and young fans to come out to the track and say, hey, let's go take our Sunday off and go do this as opposed to sitting at home and turning it on the TV and watching I like that idea. I think there could be something there for sure. See, where else can we go here in the last 10 or 15 minutes or so that we have? Let's go to Stephen Kilsdonk, who says, Santino, if you could choose one Formula One car from the past and one Indy car from the past to turn some laps in, which cars would you choose and why? Oh, man. I'd like to go really old school on the f1 car if i could maybe a little bit of the even pre-senna era you know i just want to i'd love to be in something in the 80s that's h pattern 
heavy, big V10 engine, tons of power, huge tires, and just drive one of those sideways everywhere. Because back then, I feel like, you know, the cars cars today are so aero-dependent, and they're so, you know, glued to the ground. I'd love to have something of the complete opposite, something that just slides and you know, you have to be, and you can feel the edge and you have to be on the edge to be quick. And same in IndyCar, you know, just going back into the the nineties to race in something like that would, would just be amazing and spectacular. You know, I'm all about old school. I want the bigger engines, the bigger tires with no downforce whatsoever to just go out and drive it and drive it hard. Because the the driving of today, you know, it's so precise and it has to be so perfect every lap, corner by corner. It really pushes you as a driver. And IndyCar, in my opinion, as far as today's cars go, are the most fun and they're the most free. And they're they're moving uh, immensely compared to that of a Formula One car or even an F2 car. But to keep going in that direction would be amazing as a race car driver you know it's something that i would love and i'd love to go back to sequential gearbox or something that's not on the steering wheel just because i think it's a lot of fun to have three pedals and to to really work the car and really work the gears what about on the indy car front or similar uh, similar thing similar thing very similar going going back into the 80s i'm not as familiar with going back into the history of indy car as i am but you know, I remember watching like the the ninety, I believe it was the ninety three, uh, five hundred, when Emerson won, um, and watching that race kind of during the month of May, and man, that that was spectacular. You know, going back to that era to race with those guys would be so cool. I think we have a new a new initiative, educate Santino on his IndyCar history. So for yeah. our dear listeners, if you see Santino and you have a great memory. <laughs> Be sure to stop and share it with them or give them some homework, stuff to look up, watch, <laughs> read about. Let's see. Let's go to Nathan DeRover. He says, Santino, you're well on your way towards being a fully paid IndyCar driver. What will your first big purchase be? Do you have an eye on a supercar, a boat, a plane? And after that, I'll have a little follow-up question for you. No, to be honest with you, I, I'm really happy. You know, I love driving I'm not really into boats, not really into planes. My dream car one day is to get a, a Kona Zegagera, but I am many, many, many years away from <laughs> achieving one of those. I can get you a 143rd scale model. Then maybe we'll get you a 112th, you know, just work your way towards <laughs> it. Uh, it sounds like a good plan, Marshall. I'm your, I'll be your financial advisor here. Uh <laughs> Adding on to Nathan's question, and I believe we have someone who sent this in. I apologize. I don't have your name right in front of me. Someone was asking options for next year. How are things going in terms of whether it might be returning to Dale Coin Racing, exploring your options? How is that going in general, knowing that you probably can't say, you know, fill in all the details on teams and such, but how is that going, knowing that your team owner, someone who I genuinely love, is also at this time of year fairly active at looking at his options too. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I have quite a few options on the table, more than I was expecting to to have. And 
it, it's tough to get a deal together. But I, I really like being teammates with Sebastian. Um, that's one of those things that you might you know, be the first person who's ever said that. So <laughs> Lord bless you. Santino. Yeah, no, I, I mean, a lot of people says he doesn't get along with his teammates well or at all. And he never likes anybody, but to be honest, he's, he's been more of a mentor to me this year than, than anything else. And, you know, as a young driver like myself, that's invaluable to the learning curve and it's you know teaches you so much about how to drive these cars how to work with the engineers and you know kind of because he raced over in europe so we have similar background so we have similar feedback and we have a lot of similar traits so we're, we're we get along well in that respect but there's definitely a couple options on the table and you know it all, all, all everything depends you know i feel like there's going to be some more interesting movements and news in the next two weeks than uh, there is now. So we'll have to wait and see. Would also mention here, you're currently 12th in the championship, 291 points. My beloved French fry, Monsieur Bourdais, 10th in the standings, 300 points. Doing math in my head. You're nine points behind your veteran four-time champion teammate. We'll see how much he likes you. If you leap ahead of him in the championship there, <laughs> it might be a little bit frosty from our man from Lamar, but kidding aside, it has been cool. It truly, obviously knowing Seb and, you know, being pretty good friends away from the track, it's been cool to see him really trust you. That's the thing with Seb. If we're talking reputation. Trust is paramount with him. And if, he trusts you you'll be let in it's pretty cool to see that frankly at a time coming into this season and as we open the show there's whatever amount of people in the world who don't trust you who are suspect it's very interesting to see how getting a read getting a feel knowing how hard it is for seb i shouldn't say hard but how much protection he put puts around himself he's not a fan of foolishness stupidity or otherwise he really keeps things locked down and very narrow from a professional standpoint it's been interesting to see him assess you and say no i can trust him and i'm going to let him in of the many things you've achieved this year you might not know it now but that in and of itself is pretty darn rare let's grab a couple more here before we need to uh, get on with our days Keith Lee says, congratulations on your solid and consistent rookie season so far. Very impressive. Do you have any desires or aspirations to still have a career in Formula One? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I was very happy to leave Europe behind. Um, just, just because of the fact, from a driver's standpoint alone, I got into racing for the fact that you show up every weekend knowing that you have a chance to win. That's one of the reasons I love go-karts. It's one of the reasons I loved coming to the racetrack because every weekend was a new weekend and every weekend was different. And the problem I have with formula one is I don't want to sit there and show up every weekend knowing I'm going to finish eighth or the best I can do is, you know, sixth and the average position I'm going to finish is 10th. 
you know, that's, I, I got in and loved the sport because I can win and I can win races in IndyCar. And, you know, I feel like also on a mental standpoint, I'm really happy. Like I really love the fans. I really love the tracks. I really love the teams and it's, I always have fun. I, there hasn't been a single race I've been to in IndyCar spectating or racing to where I didn't not have fun. And that's game changing to me. I think that's something where F1 can really learn from IndyCar. And, and, you know, I think that's where IndyCar excels very well. All righty. Couple more here to close. Uh, why don't we go to Kevin Frederico says, Hey Santino, is there any other type of racing series you want to try out? Sports cars, rallying, drifting, off-road, stock cars, sprint racing. What is it? I've always wanted to do rally cars. It's like one of those things where like, you know, I feel like I have, I, I, I love my car control and I feel like I have a lot of it. And, you know, rally cars has always been like one of my goals one day to get into like a GRC car and just drive sideways for fun and, you know, and enjoy it and work with the mechanics of that. And, you know, one of the races that's on my list as well is the Daytona 24. And I really hope I get a chance to compete in it this year, just, just because of the fact that, you know, I think I can do really well. And I feel like I, I work really well as with, with others and with my teammates and I have the ability to adapt into the a sports car world, I think, uh, to, to do a race like that. And, um, you know, I think I've proven as well this year that I take, I can take care of the equipment, <laughs> to say the least, um, having completed a lot of the laps. And, um, no, I feel, I feel like those are the two things that are really on my list to, to try and to try and run. So we wind down here. We're going to go to Robbie Berggren topic I've saved here towards the end so we can riff on it a little bit. Someone mm-hmm. very dear to my heart. He says, Santino, what is it about your race engineer, Michael Cannon, that makes him such a great engineer for a rookie driver? He's no stress. Like we show up at the racetrack and sit down. We chat for 30 minutes about the previous event chat for 30 minutes about what happened last year at the event we're at now. And we just go through a plan and we say, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, if we have any objections, we'll go through it. And, you know, he's been super informative. Like we literally sit down for races and just go through run exact run plans of what happened and how everything played out last year and what went wrong, what went right. And he just kind of wants you to have that experience of like, you've raced there already. And that's super helpful in the dynamic. Cause you know, he's also already setting the car up for my needs and we're pushing harder and harder. And, you know, we go through run plans and what we think is going to happen, what we think will play out. And he's just really calm and collected about it. And he never gets, you know, at least he never gets frustrated with me and my patience, <laughs> which is good. Oh, you and, should see uh, my phone blowing up, but yeah, uh, <laughs> he vents to others. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, it, he's, he's just, you know, he's super calm and chill about everything. He just, you know, he, he we go into each weekend thinking we, we definitely got a shot at it. And, I love that. You know, it's, it's 
nice to sit down and be like, all right, let's go out and kick some butt and take some names. So it's, it's a lot of fun. He makes, he makes it very, very uh, enjoyable for, for rookies, uh, in my opinion. And I think Robbie, another aspect of what makes Michael unique, he and I worked together for many years in the, the junior open wheel formula, what we'd call the road to Indy today. And he was my engineering mentor back at general racing. And so through Formula Atlantic Indy lights and such, he won a lot of races as an engineer working with young drivers on the come up. Then we know that if we're talking the big, maybe most showy example, that was when he was at players and AJ Allmendinger came into the team. And I think they ripped off like five wins in a row. Just amazing. And I think what I've seen, if we now add in, say, a Ed Jones, who was just a rocket and so impressive in his rookie season at Coin and Michael's car, you now, etc. I think Michael thrives in particular with younger drivers because there is not that massive, fully baked in, this is what I want, this is how I need it, just get it there every race. I believe the more collaborative environment with a younger driver who's still learning and therefore maybe more open to ideas on setup. Not as if Michael is going to be doing something bizarre and strange, but just. We've already done that. Yeah. Instead of, (laughs) you know, someone uh, I've mentioned this before, sometimes it can be really helpful when the driver knows so much as a race engineer, you just become, you know, that person at the McDonald's window receiving their order. I'll take a number two with a, Diet Dr. Pepper and medium fries. Got it. Change, change, change. Go out. Car goes faster. That doesn't always work, though. So when you have a younger driver, I believe, who, again, is maybe more open to a collaborative process of coming to the right setup, I think that's just really an area based on Michael's extensive experience working with young drivers that, hey, when you come in and Ed Jones, etc., A.J. Allmendinger, there's a really good bond that can be built instead of just really being more dictated to, which can happen at times. So I'm not exactly sure if that's how you guys always work, but it sure seems like it from your results. Then, you know, he's not quick to judge. You know, he loves the fact that he believes in the fact that all drivers have ability. You know, he's not going to sit there and be like, eh, he's a wanker. You know, he's going to sit there and try and find the ability in you as well. You know, he's one of those guys that's, always trying his best for you and you feel that and it makes you try harder as well let's go to jordan darwin one of our last two questions he says santino how did you get the carters as your spotters and he also asks how do you know how much grip the high line will have on the start or restart of an oval race (laughs) so funny enough in my time of spectating uh, last year at some of these oval races, uh, Poncho, I, I spent a little bit of time with Poncho, and he knew my racing background. And he told me that if I was ever in the car, he wants a spot for me, not because I need to be pushed, but because sometimes I need to be reeled back. And he said, he loves working with drivers that have that, you know, sort of no fear and aggressivity. And because I feel like he drove the same way. And 
So because of that, I trust him completely. And what he says, I'll do. So going into the start of Iowa, going up in the high lane as a driver for the first time, I don't know if it has grip. I'm just going to guess that because Poncho's probably been there and done that, that he's right. And that the car, when I put it up there, it's going to stick. You know, it's one of those things to where I trust what he says. And same thing at the Poconos. We started that race and we were three lanes up in turn one. And the philosophy that we we've created together was you're not at full speed going into lap one, turn one. You're everyone's lifting. Everyone's on the brakes. Everyone's slowing down. It's like a traffic jam. When you're behind another car, you're in dirty air. You're in a wake. The car's not going to handle as well. So if you can get a lane up, not all the way to the wall, but another lane up to where there's going to be no marbles, the track's clean. You're obviously already going slower, and there's no dirty air in front of you. There's no reason why you can't carry that little bit of extra speed, whether it be 5 or 10 miles an hour, faster than what you're doing on the low lane. You're also opening up the radius of the corner so you don't have to turn the wheel as much. So the car, in theory, should stay for at least a lap or two at at a a set speed. And I I trust that theory, and I I trust him when he tells me to go up there to go up there. And, you know, I think it's one of those things in Indy going over that 500-mile race with him and his son in my ear pushing me to keep getting up there on restarts and starts to that it will have grip and eventually figuring out that damn it does you know car's gonna stick to where you know i have a lot more trust built in to where if he tells me to go up high and i'm gonna stick i'm gonna go up high and the car's gonna stick so not a bad thing to have the carters in your ears let's go to bob not at all let's go to bob fay who says santino i live just a couple of towns away from you in seymour connecticut wanted to let you know that our whole house cheers for you as we hope to be able to catch up with you sometime at the car show in Oxford, Connecticut as well. So as my question is pretty straightforward, was just wondering if your runs at Indian Pocono were the fastest you've ever gone in a race car. Yes, actually. I think uh, being at India was the fastest I've ever been in a race car. It was like two, just under 240, which was pretty yeah, crazy. I mean, when you sit there with the high boost levels for, fast friday and you're sitting in the toe trying to catch another driver with trimmed out downforce and you're just going oh my gosh <laughs> you're literally <laughs> hanging on as a passenger like oh don't lift don't lift don't lift was that was that was that was impressive and that was just the amount of adrenaline that you get from that was just incredible but uh no i hope to see him at you know we do these car shows every sunday in oxford that he's talking about where we bring you know tons of people and friends together and uh, I'll probably see him there uh, the this Sunday night if we hold if we hold another one. I love it. All right. Well, I lied. I'm going to throw in one more here. Closing question, which I like, comes in from Len R on the good old tweeters. It says race fans are lazy. We give all racers nicknames or at least shortened versions of their names: Taku, Hinch, RHR, Seb, Dixie. Does Santino have a nickname that we can use? says may i suggest tino sunny and then uh jeremy from hbg sent in with his vote of 
haircut. So what do you have a nickname? Have you heard any nicknames? We're trying to come up with something. Not that Santino's bad, but clearly it doesn't fit the convention that Len mentions. No, funny enough, so when I was living in Italy, I was always called Santi, S-A-N-T-I, which is a derogative of my origin of my name, Santo, S-A-N-T-O, which is my great-grandfather's name. But I'd almost prefer to leave the European name behind. And a couple of my close family friends uh, call me SF because, you know, what's funny is we have a lot of people that are, I'm friends with a lot of people that are, you know, the first, second, or third generation of the same name. So you go like T1, T2, T3 or, and stuff like that. So we just end up with a shortened version of SF. And that comes from my friend, uh, Tim. But uh, to be honest with you, I kind of like it because it's a little catchy. But SF? That's the race. Yeah, it's up to race fans. I mean, when I hear SF, I think San Francisco. So, so do I. Okay. But also, I thought Scuderia Ferrari at first. All but right. I, mean, I see. I see your mind's in a different place, Marshall. Oh, I'm from San Francisco, so I guess that's kind of not too much of a surprise. All right. Well, we're closing the show with a question. We need folks. We need some ideas. We need some hashtags for a proper, I'd say, Americanized nickname for Santino because you have a beautifully Italian name, but clearly, I think folks want something easy, sunny, they for want example. Sunny. Yeah, like Sunny's barbecue. Thank you, Dale. Hey, I mean, look, could you do that? How much would it cost, Dale, for you for a week, maybe a race? I don't know to change your name to Sunny and then just fully rep Sunny's barbecue. There's some options I, in here. I want to rep the Sunny's barbecue car for sure. Are you kidding? That'd be amazing. Then we could put whatever uh, Paul Tracy called me on the, the Portland race last year, Sunny Faruqi or something. <laughs> something hilarious it's like a joke boy all right well look all right dear listeners we got a job here we need to come up with some options for nicknames for a man santino ferrucci always appreciate you spending some time always appreciate the fact that you know when you and i speak and we have questions from folks that aren't just super easy softballs you have never ducked them or taking them and so i do appreciate that as well Obviously, look forward to the final races of the year and to see how you close this out. Nine points behind the old man. Again, he might start a little frosty. A little frostiness might be in the air if you pass him in the championship. But, boy, that wouldn't be a bad thing for you as you look towards a second year in IndyCar. No, not at all. I mean, also, it's funny. is like I don't look at it like I'm racing Sebastian either, which is kind of strange. Like, I don't feel like I'm racing him for a championship. We're, like, in our own championships here. I mean, it's we're, we're pushing each other to get the car better and the team better and everything else. So I think the championship to us, whether who beats who, is irrelevant to both of us, which I think is pretty cool. Corey Enders, glad to have you on your first appearance, the Week in IndyCar podcast, our weekly look inside the road to Indy, getting to know some of the drivers like yourself have yet to be on the show and bring a little bit more depth to what our awesome partners at cooper tires happen to do in trying to elevate the next generation of open wheel star hopefully let's look at your upbringing Corey. 
It's one I find rather interesting. There is, there are musical notes throughout your world. There's all kinds of interesting things throughout your world. A nationally ranked chess player as well. I believe online chess, though, you might have to clarify whether you actually go to live in-person tournaments. It seems like, I don't know, a less linear background than we find with a lot of young drivers, and I love that. Complexity is awesome. Yeah, you know, Marshall, I'm I'm one of those people that kind of like dabbles around in everything. Like when I was younger, I was really into computers. I don't know if it mentions that anywhere what you're reading, but I, you know, I did a lot of programming when I was younger and I love to build like computer programs and reprogram games to the way I wanted them to be. Um, that was something I picked up really at a young age and, you know, just started working from there. And, and that was around the time I started go-karting actually. And uh, to kind of touch on the chess, I do play online or I did play online tournaments. Um, I recently did a interview, actually a chess interview at the Texas motor speedway during the IndyCar race. Um, regarding uh, my past in chess and like how I kind of got into it and how I relate it to racing. Um, that's a really interesting article. I think if you're interested in knowing how I compare like my chess style to the way I drive, because I think there's a lot to do, like a lot of comparisons between chess and racing. Well, since this is audio reading would probably not do my listeners much service. So why don't you tell us the parallels that you've seen between the two? Sure thing. I can do that. So basically, um, I like to, the way I play chess is a very aggressive style. Um, I don't know if you play chess, Marshall. I tried and realized that checkers were about my pace. Hey, checkers is really fun too, though. Oh, it's fun. It's checkers is chess minus the intelligence, which is why it worked so well for me. Interestingly, there's actually quite a bit of strategy that goes in checkers. I bet I could win nine out of ten checkers games that I play. It comes down to a little bit of luck, but there is a strategy to it, to winning. I can show you sometime if, when we meet again in person. It sounds like this is going to be a heck of a lot of fun at a racetrack that has nothing to do with racing. It's kind of my thing. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that I like to, when I'm at the track even, I like to try to disconnect from racing after I've done my debrief, after, you know, We've gone over everything with the engineer. Uh, we actually have like a little game system set up in the trailer. And I like to just completely disconnect and then come back to it and try to, you know, recall all those things that we went over and try to test myself to see how well I like really listened in the debrief. I, I, I like to do a lot of things. I like to distract myself and just kind of do tests on myself throughout the day. Um, but uh, kind of getting back to the chess. Sorry, I got off track there. Uh, I like to play very aggressively in chess, which I think is interesting because I don't drive extremely aggressively. I'm a very calculated driver, um, and obviously there's a lot of calculations going on in chess. So that's kind of where I tie the two together is, you know, you have to think quite a few moves in, ahead in chess. Um, I think the saying goes for racing, you know, when you're coming into turn one on the first lap and all these cars are around you, you have to think, Okay, where is he going to go? Where is he going? Is he going to try to pass me? Is he going to try to pass the car ahead? Should I go to the inside? Should I go to the outside? There's just a lot of calculation that goes into it, and uh, I think playing chess actually helps train that part of your mind, which is something I think a lot of drivers don't really do. Is a lot of mind training, um, and I think that's a huge part of racing because it's such a mental sport. I love the aspect, probably more than anything, Corey, that 
you're looking for ways to stretch your understanding and understanding obviously being a generalism, but compared to maybe too many drivers who can hold basic conversations, but you can tell there hasn't been a lot of development between the ears on anything other than driving. I do appreciate the fact that you are looking at ways to stretch your viewpoints from a strategy standpoint, just the grasping the reality in front of you, spatial awareness, if you want to call it that, but having to plan, strategize, incorporate a lot of things that aren't just pure instinct, which can often be the only thing that drivers gravitate towards. Do you find yourself with the ability, Corey, to tap into that primal mind when you need because the flip side to this is there are some drivers charlie kimball comes to mind who is extremely smart we know he is his brain is just it's a beautiful thing there are times though where thinking brain charlie compared to animal animal brain charlie uh, might have a stronger presence than it needs curious for you if you've been able to switch between needs behind the wheel or if you gravitate more towards one that is a very interesting question marshall and i have a definite answer and it's that i'm working on um you know toning that aggressive side of my brain um as you said i do gravitate more towards the calculated um approach to things you know thinking about everything one step at a time and really understanding what's going to happen and try to predict everything um, and sometimes, especially in the kind of racing that I do in Indy Pro 2000, um, it just doesn't work. You know, you have at best in the, you know, the final race, 50 minutes to get the job done. And, uh, this year we've been struggling a little bit in qualifying pace. You know, we have such, such a competitive group of guys out there and, uh, we've just been struggling a little bit, but I think we've got things under wrap for next year and towards the end of this year for sure. But, um, yeah, it, it just doesn't, it's, it's really hard to switch between those two things. You know, it's either like you're one or the other. I'm trying to get a balance of the two for when I'm on track, but uh, it really is a tough thing to do. Marshall. Simon Pagino is another perfect example of this. And he'll readily admit that so much of what he does off the track is to pre- prepare his mind and just prepare his, I guess, entire being for not overcalculating behind the wheel because he is a person who will let you know the proverbial thousand different uh, equations run through his mind you know like he can reach out into the air and move the numbers and you know he can fall into that position and it's great when you are needing to do that but there are times where you just need to be honestly as dumb and reactive or proactive as as can be in the proverbial zone where you're not thinking you're just doing and so for him that's been a big part of his career of whether it's meditation a lot of reading a lot of research on how to i guess switch learn how to switch between those two mental states based on the situational needs so you as a much younger driver i would not expect you to be in that place yet but just know you're not the only guy. Uh, full IndyCar Very champions, Indy 500 winners, 
have this same dynamic. There are others like a Scott Dixon, who I love to say looks like he falls out of bed five minutes before the race. You know, just like, oh, okay, all right, we'll climb in. Oh, I won. All right, that was cool. Bye. You go, what did you just do? (laughs) How do you do that? People have been stressing and pacing for hours thinking about how they're going to try and beat you. And you're like, oh, that was fun. Where are we going for dinner? Um, Yeah, granted, also brutally smart, but he's able to compartmentalize and draw from what he needs when he needs it. So, again, for some, it's just nature. That's how it works. For others, like Simon, maybe yourself, it's a learned thing, but at least you've seen examples of those who can make the most out of it. Spray a lot of champagne, cash some big checks, too. Well, let's uh, let's do this, Corey. We've got a couple of questions that have come in, and we'll go to Robbie Bergren first. He says, Corey, what do you think you need to improve the most to continue ascending up the road to Indy ladder? I, I think... It's just that what we were just talking about, actually, um, it, you know, it's really, it's really a hard thing to switch between those two mindsets. And I, for my entire life, you know, everything I've done between chess and programming and music, it's all been very calculated and and very focused and, uh, just thinking extremely deep into things, sometimes too deep. Um, and every other thing I've done, um, I've been able to pick up on it very quickly. And, uh, there was a, a huge incline in my, ability and raising at the start. Uh, but I've seemed to hit this plateau where I just need to really step back and let my primal instinct take over and just let the, you know, the talent that I have drive me around the track. Sometimes that's just what it takes. You know, you just have to completely get in the zone as some say and, and drive. Before we get to the other couple of questions that we got, wanted you to tell us more about the D force racing team that you are with one of many high-quality Road to indie teams, and I'll throw a but in here, and the but is not a negative. It's just a, a transition. But D-Force, compared to some of the bigger names that have maybe been around for decades or, if we think in indie Lights terms, you know, an Andretti Auto Sport uh, and so on that truly have big-name cachet, I wouldn't put D-Force in that same position but that doesn't mean they are any less talented or capable. So for those who aren't aware of the team you drive for, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So DeForce racing, um, I'll just start with how we started. Um, I was testing in the old pro Mazda. You're familiar with the old chassis. I'm sure uh, the star Mazda. I've engineered um, many. I've built them. Yes. Yeah. Love them to death. No, you're familiar with those. Those are awesome cars. Um, I was doing some testing with David Martinez, who is one of our team owners. And uh, we decided that, you know, since it was the last year, it was this was 2016, I believe. Yes, 2016. It was the last year they were going to be running that car at um, – actually, no, it was not. It was two years ago before they were going to drop that car and move on to the new chassis. But they were running at Laguna Seca for the Soul Red finale in 2016. And we decided to make our debut. And D-Force was nothing but an old go-kart trailer, basically, like to hold maybe five or six go-karts. So a big go-kart trailer, but a go-kart trailer nonetheless. Uh, Three mechanics, an engineer who was also our team owner, David, and our other team owner, Ernesto, who just kind of helped organize the mechanics. Since everybody spoke Spanish on the team but me, um, this was quite a learning curve since I had no idea how race weekends worked. Um, thankfully David spoke 
English and he was also my coach and he kind of got us through it, but that was our debut. And, uh, since then, three years later, we've grown into a, we're running in now three series, which is USF four, uh, Indy pro 2000 and USF 17, uh, two of those in the road to Indy. And we are actually looking to grow. So to answer your question there, Marshall, um, we are also taking the calculated approach in this building a race team. Um, I like to think that Moy, who is my teammate and I like play a huge part into the growth of divorce racing. And, uh, we like to kind of make all our decisions together with our team owners. Um, and we see a lot of growth in the near future. Um, we're doing a lot of things behind the scenes. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's confidential, but we're doing quite a few things behind the scenes, uh, to improve our team and to make sure that we are, uh, much more competitive in the years to come and not only just competitive, but to make sure that we grow into all sorts of different series. Um, I think our end goal is actually to have an indie indie car team and be one of the only road to indie teams that actually has a full progressive ladder from USF 17 to Indy lights. And then you are able to move from Indy lights to our car and Indy car. That's the goal. That's the dream. And that's kind of what we're aiming for now. It's definitely a few years off, but um, something we're definitely striving for. Confidentiality on the road to Indy, boys and girls. I love it. But that's a wonderful Absolutely. thing, though. And that, that's why I, I have liked this little team. I have enjoyed watching its progression. Mr. Martinez as well with his background in the sport. I mean, it's it's a great thing to see something like this start to build and great to see that for a young driver like yourself, you tend to get two situations and you guys are, you are in a third. You either get the family team straight up mom and dad, not necessarily mom and dad, you know, turning wrenches, but Hey, we created the team for our son, for our daughter, or Hey, we just paid a lot of money to go to whatever team. And we're a client being somewhere in the middle, kind of like you are of being able to, really help shape and steer and help things build as well while you're doing all of those things, shaping yourself, building yourself, trying to steer upwards. I really, you know, I like this for you. And I wonder if this could be something that more young drivers look at say, huh, how could I be a little bit more a piece of the, the foundation here than just someone who, you know, came and went and you guys were just a step on my own progression, but ultimately disposable. So I love what you yeah. have going on there. And I just wanted to throw this out there. I'm not sure of the, the demographic who's listening, but if there's anyone who's my age, which is 22, you know, somewhere around there. And, you know, I chose to take, this is kind of random, but also related. I want to say that basically if you're thinking about like going to college or not going to college, because I know that's a, a situation that a lot of people my age are faced with nowadays because Social media is completely changing the way that we think about everything. Um, and it's making people believe that you can just go out there and become, you know, an influencer and, and be an Instagram model and all that kind of stuff. I just want to say that it is absolutely possible to do whatever you want to do at this age. Cause you know, when I was in high school, I was faced with the choice of either going racing or going to college. I was actually thinking about going to MIT for electronic, um, for, I'm sorry, for electrical and hardware engineering. I was going to get my double masters in those. I decided that going racing would be more fun. And, uh, I'm slowly realized, but definitely certainly realized that you have to make a career out of it. 
you know, you can't, it can't just be fun forever. You have to make a career out of it. So, you know, making a business relation to the team and, you know, help form that business and be a part of it and actually, you know, take away a profit from it. And, you know, that's a very satisfying feeling. So to any drivers out there, my age or even younger listening, it's just, I want, you know, try to be as inspirational as you can be. Cause that's what I go off of. I think, how can I be inspirational to people my age who are confused right now about what they want to do? Just kind of tying that back into the D-Force thing. It's just, there's a lot of confused people out there because a lot of kids my age ask me like, okay, how did you, you know, how did you do this? How did you become a race car driver? And you just, you know, a lot of it is luck and, you know, you fall into a good position and then you make the most of that position. You just have to make the most of your position, basically. I love it young and inspiring i mean you're taking a lot of boxes here Corey. let's continue with our man jameen tuttle who always sends in great stuff says Corey, this year seems like it's been difficult but you seem to be getting the most you can out of your car do you have any idea for your plans for 2020 yet he has a second question for you but are you thinking hey maybe another year at the indie pro 2000 level would be the right thing or are you thinking Indy Lights is attainable? It's always a, a pivotal question, right? If you're not on that championship march, do you spend another year thinking there might be more things to, to learn? Or do you say, you know, randomness is the thing that has set me back. There's no need to spend another year here. I I love that question. And it really comes down to, you know, there's always more to learn. I don't care how long a car has been around, how many people have worked on it, how many times it's been torn apart and analyzed. There's always more to learn. These cars are so sensitive to everything. I mean, you can tune a car in so many different ways. You can do something on a car to make it feel a certain way in so many different ways. And it's just the way you do it can affect and can be affected in so many different conditions. So to answer your question, I am going back to Indy Pro 2000 next year. We have huge plans to be a lot more competitive next year. Um, I think. Can we announce the Team Penske Alliance right now, or should we keep that under wraps? (laughs) Yeah. Roger Penske coming over as our team owner. RP is going to be your strategist, too. Yeah, exactly. Now, when he tells you to pit for the first time, just go ahead and ignore him. All right. You just stay out there for the full race. But that sounds, I mean, but I love the fact, and that does sound great, Corey, though, that while you were not that far away from finishing the season, but you have already said, okay, we're going to dig in and get more next year. Plus we're not just going to try and do the, well, we'll give it another attempt and see what turns out. You and the team are saying, okay, here are the things we believe we can already do better. Let's build in some additional infrastructure and, or make some changes. The fact that you're at that stage now compared to October or November, that's very impressive. And you know, it's not just about me, Marshall. It's about the drivers to come on our team. I, I see myself as more than just a driver on the team. I, you know, I, I love this team. I built this team with David and, and Moy and Ernesto. Uh, we we did so much for it, and I want the drivers who come on our team to drive a fast car. And uh, I love working with the team. You know, we have a really tight family within the team, and uh, we're able to communicate with each other really, really well. So we all know what we need to do. Uh, it's just a matter of doing it. So we're going to do that again next year and, uh, try to make the car fast for drivers to come in the next couple of years. 
Jameen also asks, he says, I saw that you're also a driver for the local Sugarland, Texas car dealers. I uh, believe that being Mercedes and McLaren. He says, so what does that involve and how did you get the gig? So I got the gig because um, my dad actually owns the two dealerships. So it's, we kind of created a combination of things. Um, the car, I'll focus mainly on McLaren for, for right now, but I'll move on to Mercedes. McLaren is a very high-end car. I'm sure you're obviously familiar with it. Um, they recently came out with production cars, and not a whole lot of people know about the production side of McLaren. So what I do is I take people on track. We have on-track events. Uh, we invite potential clients, um, and they can bring their friends and whoever they like. And I take them around for hot laps on our local track in Angleton, Texas, called MSR Houston. Uh, and we go around that track and, and basically just I try to explain as much as I can about the car to people. Um, I'm like a driving salesman, if you will. Uh, I kind of pitch the car to people while we're driving around the track at like 160, 170 miles an hour, which is a lot of fun. Um, people usually need a little bit of repeat of information afterwards, but um, it's, it's a ton of fun. And I essentially do the same thing uh, for Mercedes. Um, I'll touch quickly on it as well. Um, I did a webisode, or I guess you call it a yeah, webisode, on YouTube called Hot Laps, where I teamed up with Mercedes-Benz of Sugarland and McLaren Houston to kind of take local celebrities, you know, influencers from around the Houston area around in the cars and just kind of scare them on camera while talking about the cars. So those actually did really well and increased um, sales quite a bit, increased our website traffic, increased our social media presence. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work. Um, I just kind of work on the social media side and the marketing side of, you know, McLaren Houston and Mercedes Benz Sugarland driving them around and making sure that everybody is um, informed about McLaren, basically. Well, that sounds like you're a pretty busy young man. Let's close with a, a fun question here from our man. I'm assuming it's a man. It could be a woman. So my assumption could be false. Windy car says, what does Mr. Enders look forward to most about visiting St. Louis and gateway? Referring to this coming weekend's jam pack open wheel jamboree, the Bomberito Automotive event. He says, got any barbecue recommendations? And are you going to try and swim in the Mississippi River for a post-race victory celebration? That sounds like a lot of fun. You know, um, hopefully we are doing a post-race win celebration because we had a ton of pace um, in the last official test last week over there. Um, we were actually third, only two tenths off of first. Yep. Um, for the first time in the season, you know, we saw a glimpse at the top there, and uh, it was really promising. So, you know, we're keeping our heads cool. Um, a test is a test, and you have to take it with a grain of salt. You never know what people are doing or what they're testing or working on. Uh, but we're going to, you know, come in with our heads high for, for the race and see if we can catch ourselves a podium, maybe even a win. I mean, that would be great. We'd love to get a podium this year. That would just really brighten our moods for next year. You need a little bit of mood brightening. I'm never sure, though, Corey, having done this for a really long time, I've I'm, I'm never come to a conclusion whether getting towards the end of a cra crappy year, not saying your year has been crappy, but getting towards the end of a year where, boy, we just haven't had that result we really feel like we should whether getting something positive towards the end of the year is the best thing 
or if completing the year in that state of frustration is actually going to serve you the most during the off season, the proverbial thorn in your paw not being removed. I'm not saying you and those in that state wouldn't remain hungry if you did have a positive finish, but never really come to a conclusion as to whether it'd be better to truly just have a punishing year or one that just didn't live up to expectations and have that sitting in the pit of your stomach all throughout the off season, or if having that little bit of relief maybe in a race or two towards the end of the year would be better. What do you think? Well, I can tell you this. Um, I agree with you completely. That's a, it's, it's tough to say we will remain hungry no matter what, but if I'm coming towards the finish line and I'm in a podium position, I'm not lifting my pole the gas. That's for sure. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to push through to the end that if we get that podium, I mean, it's going to brighten our moves for a minute, but uh, we're definitely going to remain hungry. Uh, there's nothing that can change that because this year has been a very frustrating year for everyone on the team. We all feel like we deserved a lot more for the work that we put in. Um, a lot more pace, a lot more out of the car, and uh, we just haven't been getting it. And we just need that last little push to get us there, and I think that's what we're going to have next year for sure. Corey, thanks for spending some time with us. Hoping folks will follow you throughout the rest of the season. In particular, play pay much closer attention as we head into 2020 and the upcoming, not yet for public consumption, but some tweaks and changes at D-Force that we hope will allow you and the rest that come along to race with you guys be a much stronger, stronger presence in and around the podium. So thanks again, my man. Thank you so much, Marshall. And that was Santino Ferrucci from the Dale Coin Racing Team and Corey Enders from the D-Force Team in Indy Pro 2000 on the Road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires. If you haven't had a chance yet, you might check out MarshallPruittPodcast.com. It is where all 600-plus episodes happen to live, broken down into a variety of categories that you might enjoy, and also every method possible to subscribe. Apple Podcasts has been, I think, about 50%, right around 50% of where traffic is coming from. So that might be the easiest place to subscribe from, but there are plenty of other options we have included on our little subscribe page on Marshall Pruitt podcast.com all right let's get going let's move on to here hopefully we'll roll right into the next episode coming up on your set list this being your q a three plus hours of me talking a little bit of crap